Luke 10, 17 says, And the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devil's subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notwithstanding, in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer and commit this time to him. Father, we thank you for your precious word. Thank you that we have the ability to be able to read it, that you've preserved it for us. And we pray now you would teach us through it. We pray for the work of your spirit within our hearts. And I pray that our minds would be open to whatever it is you would have us to learn today. That we would not just learn what you would um, have us to know, but Father, that we would live those truths in our lives that would make a difference not only to ourselves, but to those people around us. We thank you for your grace, and we pray for more of it today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. There are many things in life that cause people to rejoice. I um, Just before, while we were setting things up, I heard a, a child um, around here, and I thought there was a kid outside that was playing around. Every now and then I'd hear, and I look and there was no kid. I thinking, where are the kids outside? And then every, every, Alicia was having a bit of a laugh behind the piano because it wasn't a, there wasn't a kid out there. There was Don playing videos of his grandson, um, which I think is, is warming to the heart. Um, Don's probably a good example of what it means to rejoice um, over the birth of a, uh, of a child. Um, and, and people do rejoice over the birth of a child, and they rejoice over many different things. I mean, I love being at weddings, and uh, we have a few coming up, which is uh, we're looking forward to. But people rejoice at good things that happen to people that you love. Yeah. When people get married that you know, or when someone's obviously having a baby, or when maybe a, a, a loved one graduates or you know finishes their um, you know the things that they've been studying for, or maybe. Um, the growth of a child, something new that they've learned, or maybe the recovery. Maybe someone's been through a hard time and they've recovered. You rejoice with them when they overcome an illness. Now, uh, rejoicing is often associated with the things and people that we love, that are dear to our hearts. Things, people that are important to us. Um, rejoicing is really evident when we are rejoicing over our loved ones. When good things happen to them and we see them rejoicing, it causes us to rejoice as well. You know, some of the uh, uh, vivid memories I have, and I'm not sure if you, those of you who are a little bit older, but do you remember when you were a kid, when you were a child, and you did something really well? And you were just rapt to see the smile on your parents' face because you had done something that brought them joy. If you understand what I'm saying? And, and it's that interaction with with joy and rejoicing actually magnifies, it actually reflects of each other. So children, um, when they do something to impress, you know those, those kids when they first maybe learn to ride a bike, 
And they say, Ma, Dad, look what I can do. And they, they, their parents are just wrapped, you know what I mean? Because they've, they've achieved something, they've done something, and the child is warmed just by the happiness that they've given to their own parents. Um, when we see people we love rejoicing, it causes our hearts to rejoice as well. And this is a sermon about rejoicing. And it really seeks to answer one important question, and that question is, what makes Jesus rejoice? What makes him really happy? I'll give you some examples from an earthly perspective, but what makes Jesus rejoice? And my hope in discovering uh, the answer to this question is that we would not only rejoice as well in the same things that he rejoices in, but also like children seeking to make their parents rejoice, that we would do the same for him. That because he loves us so much, that we would want him to rejoice even more when he sees and looks at our own lives. Does that make sense to everyone? Good, I'm glad. You know there's only one place in the whole of the Bible that records Jesus rejoicing? One place. And that's this passage we've just read here. There's no other place that mentions that he rejoiced. And this, one, this particular place is that he rejoiced in his spirit. Um, and in this passage, Jesus had sent 70 of his disciples out, two by two, uh, into the towns of Israel all over the place to go and preach the good news of the kingdom of God. He had, at the same time, given them authority over sickness, over devils as well. And before we continue, I just want to give you a bit of a background as to why this actually occurred and how this actually occurred. Um, when Jesus came to Israel, he came preaching the kingdom of God. In other words, what he was saying, when he said to them, the kingdom of God is at hand, what he was declaring to Israel, whom he came, remember, he mentioned a few times that he didn't come to anyone else apart from the children of Israel because they were the ones who were supposed to recognize him as their rightful king. He's called in a number of places in the Bible, the son of David. And that's not for no reason, because he was actually a descendant of King David. And he was actually, actually from, a, from an earthly point of view, was the rightful king of Israel. From, from God's point of view, he was the king of heaven. And so he was bringing those two things and saying the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God is at hand. So you'll notice in the Gospels that Jesus speaks often about the gospel of the kingdom of heaven or the gospel of the kingdom of God. He didn't preach what we classify as the gospel today. He didn't. Because we just remember him shedding his blood. And giving his life on a cross. He hadn't done that. He came to them as their rightful king and as the saviour of the world. And they were supposed to have received him as such. And so he sends his disciples into all the towns of Israel. And then that message would be delivered through them to the towns throughout all of Israel. Turn to Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 for a moment. <coughs> so you'll notice he does, he does uh, this thing over and over. Matthew 4, 23, it says, And Jesus... 
went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. That's the good, the gospel means good news. So the good news is that the kingdom of God had arrived on the earth and it was in him. Okay, He was the king. Okay. Um, and, he said, and it says there, and, uh, and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. You know, when Jesus first started his ministry, when, after he was baptized by John the Baptist and he was sent into the wilderness, straight after that, it tells us in Mark 1.15, if you just want to note that one down, it says, it's saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. When he says repent ye and believe the gospel, he's not saying repent ye and believe in the blood that I shed for you because he had to shed the blood. It wouldn't even make sense to them. But he's saying repent ye and believe the good news because the kingdom of God has arrived to the earth. Okay? Um, and to prove his authenticity as the Son of God, as the rightful Messiah, he empowered his disciples to do the same things that he was doing. To heal the sick. To cast out devils. Why? Because it was a demonstration of the power and the nature of heaven's kingdom. Because who had been in control in the world up to that point? The devil. The devil, and we still see his, uh, his work around us in the mayhem that he causes. Jesus was demonstrating this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. He wants to heal diseases. He wants you to be free of the oppression of the devil because the devil is a nasty, nasty king. And most people are, have bowed the knee to him and don't realise they are subjects of his because when you, when you declare your independence from God, you only have one other king to actually bow the knee to and that's the devil. And without realising it, there are people under his oppression throughout all the world simply because they've declared themselves independent from God. So Jesus was telling his disciples, go and show them what the kingdom of heaven is really like. Go and show them how the kingdom of heaven means freedom from disease. It means love, the love of God. It means freedom from the oppression of demons. But we know the sad truth is that ultimately Jesus was rejected as Israel's king. They rejected him. In fact, all the rulers of Israel, the ones who should have been and should have known um, that he was the right Messiah. In other words, he fulfilled all the prophecies that had come before. Things, prophecies such as where he would be born, through whose line he would come, what signs he would show, what manner he would be. No, unfortunately, they didn't receive him as their king. In contrast to the message that Jesus preached to Israel um, about the, the kingdom of God, the gospel we preach revolves around the salvation that God's pro God provides through the death of his son because they rejected him. So we as Gentiles, I don't think there are any Jews in here, but we as Gentiles have been blessed because the Jews actually rejected him. And that opened the door. Because they, they had him crucified, it opened the door for the gospel to come directly to us. And while the devil may have thought that he'd won a victory by getting God's own people to reject him, 
and have him crucified on the cross, he's, the devil's probably rubbing his hands and saying, ha ha, what sort of a victory is this, mate? I've got his own people to reject him and they managed to, to hand him over to the Romans and they crucified him like a common criminal. The devil would have thought to himself, he'd won an awesome victory, but he checkmated himself. Because the scriptures actually taught that he would be rejected. And he missed it. The scriptures actually taught that he would die for the sins of the world. The scriptures had already taught that he would rise again and conquer death. And in doing what he did, he actually opened the door for the world to be saved through the shedding of his blood. You see, Jesus was the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. God already knew that. God's move was already planned a long time before. And the devil may have thought to himself, great, I've actually got him where I want him. And if they kill him and reject him as their king, that's game over. No. God actually won. And God, through that, showed exactly the love that he has for mankind. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15.1. 1 Corinthians 15.1 to the... Verse, chapter, sorry, verse 1 to verse 4. Just to prove the point here, that God had already said that Jesus was going to die, but the devil missed that point. And so in missing that, it's a bit like I've been playing a bit of chess. Who plays chess here lately? Oh, we have some chess players here. We can have a game one of these days, because I've been playing a bit of chess lately. Um, might be good, but I'm still learning. So, But I do know that when you're checkmated, when, when, when someone lines up a particular piece and is waiting for you to make the wrong move and then they can come in for the kill, that's what God actually did with the devil. So God proved himself to be a much better chess player than the devil and he will always win. God cannot lose. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, 1, it says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you. Now this is obviously after Jesus had died on the cross and had been raised again from the dead on that third day. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, the good news, which I preach unto you, which also ye have received, which means you've believed it, and wherein ye stand, which means you're saved. Verse 2 says, By which ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. There are some who may have heard the, the, the gospel, may have learned it in their minds, but didn't receive it in their hearts. And in verse 3 it says, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which, which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, what was written before, okay, and then what was written after, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. The scriptures were written detailing how he rose again, but they were pre-recorded hundreds of years before, which is what makes the Bible such an amazing book. There is no other book in the history of this world that actually tells you the precise things that are going to happen hundreds of years before, and they're fulfilled perfectly. So, do you see that phrase, according to the scriptures? Well, God knew that Jesus would be rejected. He made the offer... He came as their king. He knew they were going to reject him and then betray him. 
And in the end, God also knew that he'd be crucified, and through that he was going to save the entire world. So speaking of Israel, look at, look at Romans chapter 11, verse 11 with me. Look at what the Apostle Paul says about his own people. So the Apostle Paul is a Jew, and his, his heart is broken for, for where they are at that particular time. And in Romans chapter 11, verse 11, the Apostle Paul says, I say then, had they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles. That's you and me. Because of their fall, because of their failure in this particular thing, salvation came to us. For to provoke them to jealousy. They might not look jealous now, but it's going to become a day they're going to be jealous. Because we have received what they should have received 2,000 years ago. And in verse 12 it says, For if the fall of them be the riches of the world, in other words, if the mistake they made in rejecting Jesus has brought riches to us, and the diminishing of them, the riches of the Gentile, how much more their fullness. And it's going to come a day when Israel will be full. When they'll receive their king. When they'll realise that he is the right one. And that at that particular time, the, Paul, the Apostle Paul is, is surmising, if their fall was a blessing to us, how much of a blessing will it be to the world when they finally receive him? So that's something that the world has to look forward to, and we have to look forward to as well. So Jesus was sending these 70 disciples out um, to declare this message. Now, the 70 weren't necessarily the first to, set, to, uh, to go out together. He sent out the 12. So most of us know about the 12 disciples, okay, which became the apostles. But he sent the 12 out first to do exactly the same thing. So turn, turn to Luke chapter 9 with me. Luke chapter 9, verses 1 to 6. Now, we're almost back to where we started. But it's a chapter before. And you're going to see something very interesting. That what he did with the 70, he had done just before with the 12. And it says in Luke 9.1, he says, Then he called his 12 disciples together, and look what he did. He gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he said unto them, Take nothing for your journey, neither staves nor strip, Neither bread, neither money, neither have two coats of peace. And whatsoever house ye enter into, there abide and things depart. And whosoever will not receive you, when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet for a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the towns and preached the gospel and healing everywhere. Now, do we do it today like that? Ever shaking the dust off your feet when you uh, go into a town? No, we don't. That's not the gospel that we're preaching here. They were preaching, they were saying, they were going to towns and saying, your king has arrived. Prepare yourself for him. Are you ready to receive him? No, we don't want anything to do with him. Finish, go to the next town. We don't do that when we share the gospel. When we share the gospel, we're sharing the gospel one-on-one -on -one with people. We're sharing the gospel to, to, to receive in people's hearts. So there is, a, there is a difference. But what I wanted you to understand here was that he first did it with the 12, the very same thing. The 12 had already gone out and they'd come back. And then Jesus sends out the 70. So look at Luke 
It says there, and after these things, the Lord appointed other 70 also. So Jesus had a lot of disciples. He had plenty of them. Sometimes we only hear about the 12 and we think it's only him and 12 people that were following him. But he had, he had a number of disciples. It says, and the Lord appointed other 70 also and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place whither he himself would come. Therefore said he unto them, the harvest truly is great, but the labourers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth labourers into his harvest. Go your ways. Behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. And look at verse 9. He tells them, and heal the sick that are therein, and say unto them, the kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. The kingdom of God is very close to you. It's nearly here. It's at the door, your doorstep. So when the 70 came back, they came back all excited about what they had done. They came back rejoicing about their exploits. Now, can you imagine? You've got the power to cast out devils. You've got the power to heal diseases. You've got the power to do all these amazing things. And you're sent as representatives of the king, the future king of Israel, and God himself. Wow, that's a huge privilege, isn't it? And they came back celebrating the healings, came back celebrating, you know, casting out devils in Jesus' name. Yeah, incredible stuff. And if you can only imagine it, imagine you in their place, what you'd be like, how excited you would be. They'd maybe seen Jesus perform miracles and now they were doing the same miracles themselves. So when they came back in their pairs, can you imagine the conversations? Can you imagine when they got together, one from this town, one from that town, what those discussions would have been like? Did you see what I did? That guy with that multiple devils inside of him, he goes, I just can't, I just told them to get out in Jesus' name and they ran. They begged for mercy. The other one said, oh, you, that's nothing. You just see the people that I healed with leprosy. They just were immediately clean as soon as I spoke to them in Jesus' name. Can you imagine the excitement and the, the stories they were sharing one with another? And they, they got to the point where they had to tell Jesus about it. They were so excited. Like, wouldn't you want to say, hey, Jesus, look what we did. And that's exactly what happened. So they came back in their pairs. They compared their, uh, their stories one with another. <coughs> and then they came and told Jesus about it. It reminds me of children when they've achieved something that they think is really good and they want to tell their parents about it. They want to tell mama, they want to tell dad and say, look at what I did. And that's what they did when they came to Jesus. And Jesus responds with, it's almost like he's a proud parent of them. He looks at them and he says, yeah, yeah. Have, have a look at it, it says. Look at, look at his response in verse 18 of Luke chapter 10. Look at, notice these words. So they, they were telling him, we cast out devils in your name. We do all this sort of stuff. And, and, and Jesus tells them in Luke 10, 18. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Now what? I saw what you did. And I saw the consequences of what you did. Did you see what I gave you? No, the devil didn't fall out of heaven the first time at that particular point. But what Jesus is saying to them is, 
I know you caused so much havoc in his kingdom that he had to rush from heaven back to the earth to actually try and sort things out. You made a dent in him. You made a difference that he had to rush back. So Luke chapter 10, verse 19, Jesus reminds them about what he had done. He says, Behold, I give you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, who is the devil, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. So he's happy for them and all that they have done. Isn't Jesus wonderful? He's, he's telling them, oh, you guys did a great job. Fantastic. I'm so happy for you that you've done, you've done this very thing. But then he immediately pivots and says, but don't forget the most important thing. He says in verse 20, notwithstanding, in this rejoice not. Don't get so excited about what you've done here. Don't get so excited about casting out devils and doing, even doing healings. He says that the Spirit is subject unto you. In other words, they have to obey you. He says, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. But Jesus brings them back to the foundation of what their real joy should be from. Not because they have done something amazing, but because their names are written in the book in heaven. They would have had plenty of things to rejoice over. They would have had plenty of stories to share. But Jesus says, you know what? And he's telling them, it's your salvation that should be the cause of your joy and rejoicing. It's the constant thing that keeps going. Now think about that for a moment. It's not the things that they have done. It's the thing that had been done for them. What would you and me have been like in their position? Would we have done a similar thing? Probably. Would you have been focused? What would you have been focused on if, if you came back after doing those things in Jesus' name? Would your head be filled with all that you had seen and experienced? Probably. Did all that you had been part of? I'm sure that those disciples never forgot those days. They would have had those memories with them and shared them for their entire lives. I mean, who could forget those things? Yet Jesus says, don't rejoice in that. But rejoice because your name is written in heaven. Their message was not about healing or devils. Their main message was that the kingdom of God had arrived. And that the Messiah had come. The king had arrived from heaven in whom you could put your trust and he was your saviour. They had been called to bring people into the kingdom of heaven. In a subtle way, Jesus was also reminding them of their, of their mission. Their mission wasn't just to cast out devils and heal people. Their mission was to invite people into the kingdom of God. To remind them about, yeah, you may be physically healed, but you're still going to die, aren't you? You may have had leprosy, but it may, you may be healed of leprosy, but you're still going to die a few years later. There's a limited time that every person has on this planet. And whether you uh, enjoy that time, whether you don't enjoy that time, there is an eternity after. Which in terms of its importance, is way more important. And so Jesus is telling them, now remember your own salvation, but in a subtle way he's saying to them, 
remember their salvation. Remember, it's not really those things that the fact that you've got authority over demons, but salvation is the important thing. And there's an important lesson in there for us as well. You know, there are plenty of wonderful things that we see God doing in our lives. I mean, how many times have we prayed and we see God answering our prayers? And it's wonderful to behold. It's exciting. You know, when you pray for something and then God does something amazing and you see something coming out of, you know, totally out of left field and you see, well, only God could have done that. And you get excited about it. And God does that for us. He answers those prayers for us. He, he, he does things that glorify himself. But it's not necessarily in those things that we should be totally wrapped up. Although those things are wonderful and nice to have, even the fellowship we have with each other is nice to have, you know what? Those things are like icing on a cake. But you have to have the cake first. You can't just have a blob of icing, can you? And so salvation is that cake. And if you have salvation, you have the cake, and then God pours over all the beautiful... I don't, I don't like icing too much, but anyway, um, for those of you who are sweet make sure God is pouring over the icing on your cake which we then are called to share with other people. There is nothing more important that we can possess in our lives than a saved soul. There is nothing more valuable in our lives than to have our names written in heaven. If you have that, you have everything. You have the cake, the icing, and everything else that goes after it because you have an eternity already set out for you and you're in the hands of a loving God do you value your own salvation in that way today how do you see your salvation do you look for ice bits of icing to give you meaning or have you forgotten that the cake is the important thing and I feel like sometimes Christians they keep on saying oh I need more icing God more icing keep pouring it on because I'm not happy with the cake that I have I don't like a sponge cake God I want a triple layer with plenty of the cream in between and all this sort of stuff and, and they don't realise that the actual cake itself is life. Salvation is ultimately important to us. And Jesus, Jesus gives a, a parable where he says, you know, what does it profit a man to actually to gain the whole world? There are plenty of rich people in this world, but imagine if you owned the whole world but lost your soul. That tells you how, how valuable your soul is. Unfortunately, there's plenty of people who are willing to sell their souls for a lot less. Your soul is valuable, not just from our perspective, but from God's. God sees every soul as a precious thing. The fact that he gave his only son to save us tells us that. Let's go back to these disciples. We've often heard it said that, you know, if you ever thought to yourself, if we had only seen what the disciples saw, we'd be so different. Have you ever thought that? Like, how did they mess up again? How did Peter deny Jesus three times? After he sees Jesus feeding thousands of people with a few loaves and fishes, after he sees him walking on the water, after he jumps out of the boat and walks on the water to Jesus as well, and you think, Peter, 
If I was in your shoes, I would never have denied Jesus. But if I had seen, how could you be like a Thomas? After seeing all that, you know, all that, they, all that Jesus had done, and then you're saying, oh, I don't, won't believe it until I see it with my own eyes. Thomas, if I was in your shoes... But have a think of where that comes from. Have a think of where that thought comes from. If I was in their shoes, I'd have so much more faith. What you're essentially saying is, my faith is weak. Because I haven't seen. If I could see something, I'd have much better faith. But that's a bit like saying, you go to university to study as a, as a doctor and you do six or seven years worth of, of medicine and you finish and graduate from that. But you know what? Until you get your stethoscope, you don't feel like a doctor. It's only when I see the stethoscope will I actually believe that I'm a real doctor. That's what some Christians do. Unless I see that little thing, I'm not going to really believe that I'm a doctor. Or if I don't see that some sign from God, then I'm not quite sure whether he really loves me. Or if I don't see some sign from God, I'm not quite sure whether he's really listening to me. But that's denying what God tells us himself. That's denying what he's already done for us. That's looking at Jesus and everything he did for us on that cross. Rising again from the third day, beating death itself. The only person in history to actually die, for th be dead for three days, and then by himself gets up and says, no, you're not going to hold me down. How could, he, how could death hold him down? He's the son of God. Now, Jesus teaches us that the foundation of joy, the foundation of our rejoicing is knowing the truth and understanding that our names are written in heaven. Our salvation is secure. We have an inheritance to look forward to. Now, 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, But as it is written, I have not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. People can't even imagine what he's got waiting for us. He's told us about them in his word, but the human mind and the human heart can't even imagine what God has prepared for those that love him. And you know something? And this is the foundation of where our rejoicing comes from. We, it says, for those who love him, right? We love God because we discovered an amazing truth. And this truth changed us so that we can't be the same ever again. And that truth that changed us is that he loves us. Digest that for a while. That the God who created this universe actually loves you and me personally. That he knows your name. He takes an interest in what you do. He wants the very best for you. And he's ready to pour out everything to you if you would open up your arms and receive it. Mm -hmm. 
you know what God wants to be like? He wants to be like those little birds in the nest. You know the ones that open up their mouth really wide and then the mother, the mother comes in and gives them the food? That's what God wants us to be like. You know what? Because he has so much to give. And you will open up your, your arms and your heart wide to receive what God has for you when you come to believe, when you come to be sure that he loves you. If you doubt his love for you, you're not going to want to receive what he has for you. And that's the first thing we learned. Because the Bible says that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God loves you so much that he sent the thing that was most precious to him to take your place, to pay for your crimes, to pay for your sin, so that you can be free. We know what it's like to be in lockdown and how it's not very nice. Well, God wants to free you from all of your sin. He wants you to be completely free. And so he invites everyone to come along. He doesn't force anyone to do it. He doesn't coerce. He simply says, I'm here. And this is what I've done for you. And I want to tell you that I actually love you a lot. I love you so much that I gave the thing that was most precious to me for you. And God still loves us. And the Bible says that Jesus is saying yesterday and today and forever. He doesn't change. We change, but he doesn't. He is the same. And this truth that we learned about him has set us free. John 8.32 says, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. That's the truth that you need to receive in your heart. If you get to the point where you understand how much God loves you and you receive that gift that he's willing to give you, your life will never be the same again. There's a fountain, a foundation of joy that we can have every day. Everything else comes second, really. But my question is, is it like that for you? Or have you been distracted from God's love? trying to do a thousand other things and try to find your fulfilment in, in other things rather than his love. Because you can rest there. You can rest. Because when you have the greatest power in the universe on your side who loves you with undying love, you can rest. You don't have to fear tomorrow. There's nothing that is going to hit you tomorrow that he doesn't already know about, he hasn't already dealt with. So don't go chasing after a thousand rabbits in your life to find fulfillment, to find peace, or to find joy. Because all the joy you need, God can give it to you. He can give it to you through His Son. And that's why we can always be excited. Yeah, Christians should be the happiest people on this planet. Because what we have, the world does not have. There is something that we have received the world can't even contemplate until you receive it. There's plenty of reasons to be excited. And so Jesus, when Thomas you know, sort of said, you know, I'm not going to believe until I see him. I can't believe he's risen from the dead. And then Jesus pops into the room 
and he shows himself to Thomas and he says, look here. See these holes? They're still there. See this mark here? Have a look at that. Go and touch that there. Look at the holes in my feet. It's me. And he says to Thomas, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. There's a blessing with seeing, but there's a blessing with not seeing. So what made Jesus rejoice? Look at verse 21 of Luke 10. It says, In that hour Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and the prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes, even so, Father, for it's so it seemed good in thy sight. Jesus rejoiced over his disciples, who by simple faith received what he had told them. So he said, I want you to go. I want you to go and just go to the whatever, whatever town you had to go to, two by two. If you find a house to stay in over there, that's where you're staying. And don't take anything with you, by the way. Don't take any money with you. Don't take extra clothes with you. Don't take anything to protect you. Because I'm going to be with you every step of the way, even though I'm not even there. And wherever you go, there's going to be someone there who's going to take you into their home. And whatever they put before you, just eat that. But your, your job is to preach the gospel in that town. And you're going to be casting out devils and I want you to heal the sick. And these guys, some of them just simple fishermen. People with like no university degrees and no, they didn't have all that sort of stuff in those days. They're just simple folk who simply said, I'll go. Alright, if you say it, I'll do it. And so they, 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 by simple faith, they received what he said and they actually go to all these towns. And then by faith... They which they exercised, they discovered that everything he said was true. And that's where the excitement begins. When you, by faith, do what he tells you to do, and you discover that what he said was true. And Jesus rejoices over them for that. Like a doting parent. Jesus rejoiced in his spirit when he sees simple faith exercised in obedience. And when that person experiences the amazing grace and the love of God in their lives, when we receive the truth and respond in faith, Jesus rejoices over us. And faith responds in action. You see, faith is an action thing. It's not just, I believe, yeah, I believe you, Lord, and then just go back to what you were doing before. Faith demands action. Faith comes with action. And so does love. If, it, if someone says they love you but never do anything for you, never bother you, never never call you, never do anything, how can, what love it actually, actually has? Love is a doing thing. Love is a verb. And so is faith. You know, and you know why they do things? Because the thing that motivates them, the thing that motivates faith, and the thing that motivates love is a doing thing. You see, God's love is a doing love. He has done so much. God doesn't stop doing. And when God motivates us, God motivates our faith and, and gives us grace, we're moved to do something about it. And this is what those disciples did. And then God rejoices over that. And so Jesus thanks his heavenly Father. And it's funny here because he says that he's kept this, these truths, from the wise and the prudent, but was revealed them to babies, to babes. 
You know, in the context of this of this passage, in the previous passages, I know who he's talking about. He's talking about those who thought they knew it all. They had memorized the Bible. They were teachers and scholars. They had students uh, chasing after them. They held privileged positions. They were looked up to. The scribes, the Pharisees, the lawyers. The very people who were supposed to have known but rejected Jesus at the same time. They were the wise and the prudent. Their superior knowledge made them feel superior to these simple folk that put their faith in Jesus. They felt better than them. So they can't. How can I possibly follow that Jesus? Look at the ragtag people, bunch of people he's got following him. Look at those people. Publicans, sinners, people that were that were prostitutes. As if I would join myself to that group of people. Look at them, fishermen, people who are farmers. Why would I join myself following that guy? And Jesus says, see his father, I'm glad you held it back from them. And revealed it to babes. Unfortunately, knowledge can make someone become proud. Knowledge can make you feel intellectual and superior to other people. Not meant to, but unfortunately our fallen natures make it so. That God instead reveals his truths to those who acknowledge him and come to him humbly. And this is what Jesus is speaking about when he mentions, you know, when they ask him, who's the, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, Lord? You know, this kingdom that you're, you're preaching over here, that we're, we're proclaiming in your name. Who's the greatest? Tell us. Is it the one who knows the most? Is it the one who's, you know, who's, who's done the biggest miracles? And Jesus tells him in Matthew chapter 18, verse 1, let me tell you which is the greatest. He says, at the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him, and set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily, I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever shall therefore humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That's, that's, being the greatest in God's eyes. That you would come to God as a child, understand your your weakness, and say, Dad, I'll do anything for you. I love you, and I know you love me. Tell me what you want me to do, and accept what he has. I mean, parents, if you you obviously love your children, but if you if you if you your child is doing something wrong and you tell them be careful of that, that's dangerous. And they say to you, oh, no, no, I already know, I don't more than you. How does that make you feel? But God wants to come to them as innocent children. And in that, God rejoices over us when we exercise that trust in Him. And God gives you stuff God gives you grace. He gives you truth. He'll continue to give you stuff to grow if you would receive it. Mm -hmm. Babes are characterised by faith. Mm 
in trust rather than confidence in themselves. And that's why Jesus says we must become as little children in order to receive it. If I think I'm smarter than God, if I think I know better than Him, then I'm not going to receive what He's got for me. And He's not going to give it. And unfortunately, much of the world thinks they know better than God. Much of the world thinks that this message of the gospel, that you can believe that a man died for your sins 2,000 years ago, and that by simple, simply believing in him, you can have all your sins forgiven and be given a completely new start in life and be guaranteed heaven without having to work for it. That sounds stupid. And by the way, you believe this guy actually rose again from the grave? Come on, man. And that's why the Bible says for the preaching of the cross, that Jesus died on the cross and rose again, is foolishness, is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. You see, God made the message so simple that the most uneducated person can understand it, but sometimes it keeps the most intellectual from it. Because pride is a huge barrier for some people. And that, when someone receives that message, makes Jesus rejoice. The truth being received from God and humbling yourself before God and saying, God, whatever it is you want to show me, I'll take. Makes God rejoice. Jesus rejoices. When a humble heart receives God's truth, exercises faith, and is saved for the very first time. In fact, the Bible says in Luke 15, 10, now listen to this, for the first time someone ever comes to God and says, you know what, I'm going to believe you for that. I'm going to believe that you sent your son to die on the cross for me. I'll take it. I know I can't save myself, so I'll take that gift. Thank you very much. The Bible says, likewise I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. Heaven rejoices when one sinner repents, which means change their mind and say, God, I'm agreeing with you now. I'm going I'm to submit myself to you. When they receive the truth of God humbly and are changed because of it, Jesus rejoices when one sinner repents. And this is why the gospel is good news. It brings joy, not only to the sinner, because it had all their sins forgiven and now have eternal life, but it brings joy to God and heaven itself. And if you're given that, that passage in Luke 10, you'll notice in verse 22 to 24, I listen to Jesus' words um, to his disciples. Just as we wrap it up, this is the final passage. It says, Luke 10, 22, he says, all things are delivered to me of my Father. Which means, okay, my Father's given me all things. Right? And no man knoweth who the Son is but the Father, and who the Father is but the Son, and he whom the Son will reveal him. And he turned him unto his disciples and said privately, Blessed are your eyes which see the things that you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear and have not heard them. 
I can sense his joy for his disciples. That they were seeing and part of something that was truly historic from a cosmic point of view. And this is the same joy that he has for you. When you're blessed to hear the gospel, when you receive the truth that he has for you and you believe. If you don't have salvation this morning, and if you notice, that's really been the, top, the topic of my discussion because salvation is the source of joy. If you don't have salvation this morning, and I must be honest with you, you don't have that many reasons to rejoice. Yeah, you may have the rejoicing when you have a, a loved one that has a baby or they get married or you have a close friend and something good. But those things don't last. They're okay for a small time. But if you don't have salvation, it's not that much to rejoice about. Without the assurance of your name being written in heaven, your whole foundation for happiness and joy is really just built on sand. You'll try to get your footing, but you'll keep on sinking and not be firm. So let me ask you a question this morning. Would you like to cause a celebration in heaven? Would you like to be the cause of that? Would you like to be the one who actually causes a party to happen in heaven? Well, you can. Because if you don't know Jesus this morning, if you haven't received him as your saviour, then that simple act of faith and putting your trust in him to save you from your sin, receiving salvation as a gift because of his death for you on the cross, will cause the whole of heaven to erupt. Christian, wouldn't you like to know that Jesus is rejoicing over you daily? Then continue to believe. Continue to trust. And by faith, follow what he tells you to do. And he'll rejoice over you each and every day of your life. If you love Jesus, would you want him to rejoice? Yeah, I do. I want him to rejoice. I want to rejoice, but I want, I want to see the smile on his face. I want to see him happy. I want to boast in front of him and say, look what I've done. And I want him to be happy with what I've done. Not that that, that saves me or any good thing that I do saves me. But what? It simply shows that I've trusted him. If you have Jesus, you have much reason to rejoice this morning and much reason to share it with everyone else. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you.